Hey folks, Morris speaking here. Welcome to episode 36 of See Here Podcast. Just wanted to give you a little bit of a reminder that as well as this main episode where we're discussing Yellow Submarine, there's also a bonus episode that came out earlier on this week where I did an interview with Mitch Axelrod, one of the members of the Fab Four Free For All podcast, but he's also the author of a great book called Beetle Tunes. And we have a bit of a discussion about the Beatles Saturday morning cartoons put out by King Features between 1965 and 1967. So if you enjoy this discussion, even if you don't enjoy this discussion, please download the other episode because frankly we need the downloads. Anyway, on with episode 36 of See Here Podcast. This episode of See Here is dedicated... Mr. Jeremy, the Nowhere Man. Episode 36 of See Here Podcast. Lovely to have your company. My name's Morris. And as always, I'm joined by my animated loving, music loving, film loving compadres in Bath, Mr. Bernie Stickwell. Good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are. And in Seoul, Mr. Tim Merrill. Hey. Welcome. And did I say that there were three of us? No, I didn't. (laughs) Normally I would say there were three of us, but today we have four of us. We are joined by the co-host of a podcast that is no longer with us, but is still out there if you get the old episodes, called Down in the Hole, which was a podcast dedicated to the music of Tom Waits. But now he's doing two other podcasts, which I'll let him talk about himself. Mr. Sam Wiles, good Hello, uh, guys. Hello. Welcome. Hi, hey. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be on here now. I, uh, about two days ago, I, I just finished your episode on uh, Little Shop of Horrors. That's probably my favourite one you've done, because it actually made me want to really go out and watch the movie. I've already, I've already bought it on, on Amazon now. But yeah, uh, who am I? Um, like I said, well, I was just give me a, a, a little bit of an intro. But Down in the Hole isn't gone completely. There are a few episodes in the pipeline for the new year Ooh. but yeah we're, we're going to be doing glitter and doom we're going to do some of the compilation albums some of the, some of the songs that never made it onto albums the kind of odds and ends the real orphans if you will Lovely. but my appearance on here has been quite a long time coming really as you did have my co-host tom for a couple of episodes of love that album mm. which were also fantastic ep- episodes but now like i say i do a show called poor or nothing which is my kind of main focus and i've kind of picked up the story after the beatles but obviously you're not a fan of discussing beatles albums because what more can you add and i totally understand that so i thought i'd skip that whole bit out and just press forward and you know episode by episode i'll just go through each of the albums explain the history the content and then obviously review each songs on each release 
But I've also started uh, doing some bonus episodes where I interview authors of Paul McCartney publications that I use for the research in the show. And unlike Down in the Hole, where I kind of knew the entire breadth of uh, Thomas' catalogue, I was and still am not a complete McCartney aficionado in any sense of the word. And with the recording of the next episode, Venus and Mars, which kind of heralds the post-band on the run world of McCartney, I am truly in unknown and turbulent waters, which should hopefully make some good listening. I say hopefully, but we're here, we're here to discuss some pre-breakup stuff today, which I'm very happy to, to, to say, because I've never actually got to talk about the Beatles live on air, so this is a virgin birth for, for me, really. Well, that's right. I should say that the film that's under discussion for today's episode of C here is 1968 film Yellow Submarine, an animated Beatles film, so we'll be uh, talking a lot about that, as is the focus of the show. But after our main conversation, we have some bonus oral... What's the word I'm looking for? You'll have some bonus... Some bonus oral. Bonus <laughs> yeah, <oral>. steady. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I hadn't said that. You'll have some bonus stuff to listen to through your ear holes. I'll have an interview that I have to play for you that I did a few weeks ago with a fellow called Mitch Axelrod. Now, here's one-third of a team uh, that does a show, fantastic show called Fab Four Free For All, and all they do is talk Beatles and solo Beatles material as well, but anything Beatle-related. But it's not just talking about albums or individual songs. They'll talk about, well, what were the Beatles' politics? Or recently they did an episode talking about the film that just got released a few months ago, Eight Days a Week, The Beatles' are Touring Years. Really, these three guys, they know their stuff. And if you would think that talking about one band continuously on a podcast would be fairly limiting, these guys are there to show you that is simply not the case. They've been friends for 35 years or so, and it completely shows. They really enjoy each other's company. They're very, very funny, and they have a lot of stuff to say, and they really know all the Beatles' minutiae. But Mitch, in particular, why I asked him to be part of this show was because he's also the author of a book called Beatle Tunes. And now the Beatles had a series of Saturday morning cartoons, which, funnily enough, the only place that they didn't show, at least not at the time, was in England, because a lot of uh, people in England objected to the rather lame accents and the uh, very poor Beatle voices that they used for the cartoons. But the show was something of a success in America, and certainly here in Australia, I have strong memories of watching it as a kid. Mitch is the guru, the go-to guy about all things Beatle uh, TV cartoons, and I thought, well, it'd make a nice compliment to our discussion on our discussion about Beatles film Yellow Submarine. So what we'll do is we'll quickly go to a break. I'll play the trailer and then we'll come back to talk about all things Yellow Submarine. You're listening to See Here. Nothing is real. The Beatles. Yellow Submarine. Artwork, photography, landscapes painted with beetle sound. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. We all live in the yellow submarine. The yellow submarine. Yellow submarine. The forces of good. 
The Beatles. The Boob. I must complete my bust. Two novels, finish my blueprints, begin my begin. Hey, Jeremy, must you always talk in rhyme? <laughs> If I spoke prose, you'd all find out. I don't know what I talk about. He's a Forces of Evil, Robin, the Butterfly Stomper, Snapping Turtle Turks, the Apple Bonkers, the Terrible Flying Glove, the Arch Villain, the Blue Meanie. You could pass for the originals. Well, we are the originals. John, will you? What's the matter, John, love? Blue meanies? Newer and bluer meanies have been sighted within the vicinity of this theatre. Oh, there's only one way to go out. How's that? Singing! One, two, three, ha! And we're back from break. Morris here, Sam over there, Bernard somewhere next to him over there, and Tim a bit of a long way away over there. We're here talking about Yellow Submarine, the film not really starring the Beatles, although they do have a cameo appearance in their own film, but it is a film, an animated film with voiceover actors impersonating the Beatles. In a moment, I'll be asking you all, all you gents, Uh, of your recollections of the first time you saw it, or if indeed this was the first time that you watched it for the, for the podcast. Well, actually, I know it's not Tim's. So you know, just some uh, details. D- the director was uh, a fellow called George Dunning. Uh, it was made in 1968. The writers are accredited as Lee Minoff, one Al Brodax, who's a very important person in the whole Beatles animation world. Jack Mendelson and Eric Siegel. Yes, that Eric Siegel who wrote Love Story. And yellow submarine means never having to say you're sorry or something like that. <laughs> and there's another fellow who uh, was uncredited called Roger McGough, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about him as well. Uh, the voices in the film, there's a fellow called Paul Angelus who did the voices of Ringo, uh, the chief blue meanie, and in the latter half of the film, George Harrison. A fellow called John Clive who did the voice of John Lennon. 
Dick Emery, and I'll be asking you, English folk, your uh, memories of, <laughs> of uh, Dick Emery. Well, more you, Bernie. Uh, he did the I was going to say, I, I, I suspect Sam probably doesn't have any memories of uh, Dick nah. Emery, but yeah. I do. So. Yeah. Um, I'm th- typing him in right now into uh, Google quickly. No, 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 don't, no cheating. <laughs> no cheating. Uh, Dick Emery did the voice of uh, Jeremy, the Lord Mayor, and Max Meany. Jeff Hughes did the voice of Paul. Peter Batten uh, did the voice of George Harrison in the first part of the film. And Lance Percival who was actually one of the voices in the cartoon series, did the voice of the character of Old Fred. So the IMDb summary is, The Beatles agree to accompany Captain Fred in his yellow submarine and go to Pepperland to free it from the music-hating blue meanies. That's pretty basic, but it's you know, not far from the truth. We'll go around the table. Sam, you're our guest. What is the first time that you recall watching Yellow Submarine? Well, I actually came across Yellow Submarine kind of very late into my Beatles fandom. Uh, obviously, uh, I've, I've listened to them since I was, I was about five, and I'd never got gotten around to see it. And that's mostly because Yellow Submarine was actually one of the last albums I ever got into. Unfortunately, it is an album where you, you think you're, you are getting a full Beatles album, but you're actually getting half a Beatles album and half a George Martin album. Just a, a quick a quick aside, d- d- does everyone here like the Yellow Submarine album, including all the George Martin songs? I personally do. I didn't as a kid, but since I've grown into it, I think it's great score music. I mean, I see your point when you get a Beatles album, you want a whole Beatles album, but uh, the George Martin score, if you look at it objectively, I think it's a really great score. I remember seeing Yellow Submarine the first time in the theater when I was a kid. My uncle took me to see it. And I think it was like a double bill with uh, Yellow Submarine and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, wow. They would have kid screenings for kids Saturday afternoons. The Once in a while, they would have that odd, that odd screening that parents could take their kids to, Born Free or a Disney film or something like that. And... I just remember my uncle, Uncle Rick, being really hip and uh, taking me away. My mom gave him uh, the afternoon, and him and I went on, trucked off to the uh, theater and saw, like I said, Yellow Submarine, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And at that time, my dad was a huge Beatles fan. I mean, you know, we grew up in the house with the, the Blue Album and the Red Album and the White Album, you know, and all of it. The music to me was secondary initially when I first watched it because it was just it was just you know mind blowing all the visuals as a kid it was just melted crayons and psychedelic candy but uh, yeah that was the first time and then after that I remember it being broadcast on television in Canada usually late night you know but or, or on holidays usually around the around Christmas or New Year's they would show. Uh, the Magical Mystery Tour and Help, and they would show um, Yellow Submarine. I think the first time I saw it, probably talking mid to late 70s, and it must have been shown on TV at some point uh, back then here in the UK. And My mum was a huge Beatles fan, and I remember her being very excited by it being on TV, and so we sat down and watched it. You know, I would have been like seven or eight years old, something like that, I guess. But like Tim said, the, the kind of music didn't really mean anything to me at that point. It was more the, the visuals, just the weird trippiness of it, the cartoon aspects mm-hmm. of it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I'd, I'd say probably mid to late 70s, first mm. time I saw it. I seem to have recollection of seeing it, or certainly it was on TV the first time I got to see it. 
And but I, what I don't recall was whether it was before or after I actually became a Beatles fan. It was like 10 years old. I think it was 1975 where I first bought a copy of the EP of Twist and Shout. And that's, you know, completely changed my world. But I don't remember if I saw the film before that or after that. Back in those days, I think like a frequent Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon TV movie. And I really, really remember enjoying it. And particularly, I thought it was quite exciting where we'd see the actual Beatles at the end of the movie make their little cameo appearance. You know, like I guess a lot of other people at the time, I thought it really was their voices that were doing, you know, for the the characters of the Beatles in the actual film. And it was a big disappointment to me later on when I discovered that it wasn't. Can I just let slip something here? I I didn't realise it wasn't actually the Beatles until I watched it yesterday. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> was was that on the, because of the uh, the credits? Yeah, no, the credits. Uh, okay, so so you were watching it's, it and and uh, you you thought, oh, this must really be them. I, I kind of did. Well, as we'll probably get to as as we go through this, I'm not I'm not a Beatles aficionado in any way, shape, or form. No, you know, well, we'll get to that. It's not that I dislike them, but I'm, I'm so I wouldn't call myself a fan either. So, but we'll we'll cover all this as as we go through it. But yeah, that that was a bit of a surprise to me. As I think we'll come out in the conversation that I had with Mitch the cartoon voices for the the tv show it's very obvious that it's not really the beatles because you know there's no liverpool accents and john sounds well in mitch's words like rex harrison you know a bit of a toff which was uh anything but what john lennon was but yeah i, I tend to agree that the voices maybe not really quite sound, certainly not george harrison but the others do sound like approximations reasonable approximations certainly Paul McCartney yeah. I think in particular I'm a guy who's who makes his bre- his bread and butter on his podcast by doing a very poor Paul McCartney Im- impression for <laughs> for comedic effect and are, it, it's one of the most dis- distracting elements of the movie for me, really. And I feel really awkward being the guest now because I feel like I'm probably going to be a bit more negative about this film than you three. Maybe it's because I'm a jaded, postmodern millennial. But when I came around to seeing Yellow Submarine, I'd already studied psychedelia at school. I'd studied the, the, the 60s, post-drugs, post-animation, uh, Pixar world, CGI and stuff. And I'm still not particularly 100% won over by the final product, really. I mean, do, do you feel like it's aged well, you guys? Absolutely. I think it's really aged well. I think that there's a way, how can I say this? Today, because we live in an age of digital, that everything so much focused on Pixar, the Pixar era and all of that, I think that, you know, it's amazing when you see and you realize that all this was hand-painted, hand-drawn. I mean, like all of this art was, you know, organic and that it, it actually came from a real place instead of a computer. I mean, not to put anybody down who, you know, who, who partakes in digital art. I mean, there's a lot of fantastic digital art out there, but I think there's something to be said about seeing, how can I say this? Like the Blu-ray enhances, you know, I mean, Blu-ray and, and DVD can enhance what's already there. But when you see it though, it's just for people that have never seen Yellow Submarine before, it's still pretty stunning, especially like the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds segment. The rotoscope, yeah. The rotoscope, and also, you know, the beginning with Eleanor Rigby. Like, to me, that still stuns me how they were able to do that. It's 
like it, some of it is just gorgeous. That sunrise over England and then the sunsets right in the beginning of Eleanor Rigby. It's it's just phenomenal. I think in a way this film is a bit of a game changer. I hate to sort of like use that hacking <laughs> expression, but it really is. I'm sure that. Terry Gilliam was watching that film and thought... Oh, yeah, that's one of my notes. Yeah, he must have uh, seen yeah. this at some he point. He must be yeah, a yeah. huge fan. I mean, look, I, Python was only around the corner, so you know, I'm not sure that the idea of what was in Yellow Submarine was completely new to him, but if anything, it would have validated it, thinking, right, well, if Heinz Edelman and uh, the other animators could do this, if they could use a lot of that uh, manipulation of photography and have a lot of detail without it being overly animated, if that makes sense... I personally think that this is a big influence for a lot of what was to uh, to well, come after that. So no, it has. Here's yeah, something. Yeah. Here's no. something that'll blow your mind that you may not realize is that. Forgive me if you if you already knew this, but the entire film was completed in eleven months. Right. Yeah. When you consider what they did in eleven months, it's interesting because when you look at the behind the scenes, they talk about how they actually went and they scouted out art school students and they had them come in at night. And they were working from like seven o'clock at night until the next morning, painting all the cells and doing all this extra, like uh, filling in sketches and all kinds of stuff. Like they were working 24 hours a day for 11 months doing this. I was going to say that the 11 months, it's even more impressive when you think, because it wasn't 11 months of solid work from the first painted cell to the finished film. It was 11 months from the day that Al Brodax said, oh, well, actually, no, let's so, do it. Bro, well, actually, no, so Al Brodax had proposed the idea to Brian Epstein in 1967, but from the time that they started looking for vocal talent, from the time they started looking for which studio they were going to use. In the end, they used they used uh, what was called TVC, Television right. Cartoons, which was the same studio that ran the Beatles Saturday Morning Cartoon. King Features. King Features were the company that financed it, right. but they paid TVC to actually go do the work. So right. um, and there, there's some interesting stuff with unions and non-payment to TVC. So the, the film actually nearly got hijacked and nearly didn't get released, but that's that's another story. But really, there was, it wasn't actually 11 months of solid work on the film. It was like when they started at the, the start of that 11 months, they didn't even have all the people that they were going to use in the actual making of the film. So it was even less than 11 months that it took to come off with a finished product. And I know that there was talk. I read this great article. Maybe you saw it as well, Tim, in Mojo magazine. I had an old Mojo magazine from 1999 and it had this great synopsis of it, but it, yeah, it said that that 11 months time, but they, they also said that by the time they finished, the animators were not actually happy with the final product and they would have done a lot more. And to my eyes, I think I wouldn't have changed anything about it. The fact that it's, we don't want too much in the way of animation. When I say animation, I mean like in character movement. We get to see lots of little things going on in the background. You see uh, fish swimming with their hands and Ringo off riding some unknown uh, creature in the, in the background and all lots of little things are there. There's not much movement. If you understand that Terry Gilliam style that came later, but it's, it's to me, it's absolutely perfect in its use of imagination. And yeah, there's, I don't think there's anything else quite like it. Actually, you know what I was going to say, Tim Bernie was at, uh, this reminds me the film that we covered a couple of years ago now, Allegro non troppo by Bruno Bozzetto. Well, I reckon he took a lot of his sense of the surreal 
probably from this film. I was yeah, actually going to bring bring that film up big time because actually not even because of the surrealism of it all, but the last the, the most recent time I just watched Yellow Submarine, I saw it as a as a new film for the first time because I've always watched the film as being kind of a linear film straight through. And I never really, it never really dawned on me, or I never really looked at the film from the perspective of it being little different segments that are all strung together with a narrative, right? I I never really looked at it like that before. But with each song, there's a different type of style, and there's very subtle differences, but they're there that in each part of Yellow Submarine that really make them different, like stand out from each other. And that's like Allegro non Trompo, how, you know, that film was all made up of, of different aspects, but it was kind of held together by this narrative. I'm going to tell you my summary of the plot, and then you work <laughs> out what you think the film actually is. I mean, it's Yellow Submarine, but what other film meets this this uh, criterion? Village is invaded by marauders. Someone from the village escapes to go and get some superheroes to come and help them. They come and get rid of the invading marauders. Name the film. Bug's Life. Um, <laughs> now you're being facetious. Star Wars. <laughs> Uh, no, I, what's so, this? It's the Magnificent Four, isn't it? With the, the Seven Samurai, the, I guess. Correct. Yeah. Is exactly. Yeah. This week, I was thinking about this, thinking this is the Seven Samurai, but just done for a pop culture audience. Yeah. yeah. Hey, how's it look? Groovy, groovy. Um, I wanted to briefly talk upon and see what you guys sort of think about how the Beatles are represented. Because, I mean, you know, the Beatles in real life were one, you know, they each had their own personas in real life, and then there was the public persona that they presented themselves as smart Alex at press conferences and the like. Really, more to the point, the Beatles were represented one way in a hard day's night, uh, which was a comedic version of their real selves. But in help, they were just playing four guys who happened to share their names and happened to be in a group called the Beatles, but it was not the real Beatles. They were characters. And then there's the Beatles as characters in Yellow Submarine. Where Do you have any thoughts about the differences in, in the way they're represented in uh, all three films, commonalities. I've always been disappointed by most of the Beatles films, really. I've never been a fan of any of the ways they've been portrayed, except for probably Let It Be, which is, is my, easily my, my favourite Beatles film, because that's where you actually get behind the sort of pro- the propaganda of what they're meant to be about. And I, I would have liked in Yellow Submarine for them to have been more like actual characters. Like <laughs> when you when you're talking about dis- describing the plot, just I actually scoffed a little because I didn't think that there actually was a plot to this film. It, it was interesting, uh, Tim, when when you mentioned the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds segment. That is what people talk about when they talk about Yellow Submarines. They talk about moments here and there, and it is just a series of vignettes and shorts yeah. that are kind of right. taped together to make a cohesive narrative, and that doesn't make for good characters. Like, Ringo can be funny when the Yellow Submarine's following him behind the pillars and stuff, and he's being, oh, I'm Ringo. Hey, would you believe me if I told you I was being followed by a Yellow Submarine? But it, it, it does just seem to be kind of even furthered stereotypes of who they were in, in the Beatles cartoons and things like that. And having something yeah. like, you know, a bit of Lennon's witticism, a bit of McCartney being a bit being a bit smug and more spiritual George. I know they're kind of the realistic stereotypes of them, but to have more personality in there would have given the film a bit of a bit of a boost for me. It's more of a Ringo movie than a Beatles movie at the, at, at the end of the day, and I wish there would have been more interplay and dynamic between the group. I mean, uh, I was going to say this for a, a bit later, but I really would have preferred the film to been set during, say, the White Album or Let It Be during the worst part of their career. It wouldn't have made for a very 
very good uh, kids film though. No, well, like, it would be, be literally five, five, five minutes, and the ending is they get back together because of the experience they they had in in Pepperland. It would be a bright, shining ending. But wow, history's been changed forever. Obviously, children nowadays uh, wouldn't be able to get the kind of significance of of, of that, but. Obviously, it would have meant the Yellow Submarine would have been probably made in the 70s as well, which would have lost its kind of 60s psychedelic charm as well. But yeah, overall, I'm not. I think the Beatles are one of the weakest aspects of their own movie, unfortunately, and I think that's kind of telling across all the several segments of the film, especially in the Beatles mansion at the, at, at the start. I thought that was just a, a very strange, strange series, series of moments. There's a funny thing that I read an article that was in depth about uh, the making of Yellow Submarine, and what what was weird was that they actually drew each of the Beatles differently. You know, and the way that uh, George Harrison walked, he walked like a cowboy in real life. He had that kind of gait about him, so they drew him like that. And then they actually, even to the point of where um, Ringo was slowed down, like with his frames per second, was actually slower than the other three guys. Mm. And and you can see it in the film, like where Ringo's always the one that's behind He's he's always kind of traipsing along, you know, doing his thing, right? And right, right. Each, and each of them have their own style and their own height. Like, there's the animators really went out of their way to kind of make them all specifically different and, and kind of relative to the real Beatles in a certain way. But there's two things I have to say though that always got me as a kid. I always thought that Ringo looked like a cat because <laughs> because he's got those cat's eyes. He's got the way you know, like those dark beady little eyes the way that they they had him and the other one too was that mccartney looked asian it was more i think john because when you look at there's a segment in the film when they go through the sea of time and first they're all getting old and then they go backwards and they're all getting young and i think there's a a, like a little footnote in mojo magazine that says uh, has a photo of john in his younger guys like in the film and it says prototype for sean hey look everything's getting bigger it's not it's also they're getting smaller (laughs) Come on, man! It looks looks a lot like <laughs> looks a lot like Sean Lennon. Wow! Yeah, the Beatles themselves were very apprehensive in the beginning about the whole project because you know from what I've read they were afraid that they were kind of going to be kind of disnified so to speak they didn't want to be made into some type of uh, cutesy pop they didn't want to become Disney characters basically well I mean I think that's was already the problem through the Saturday morning cartoon series they were never disnified but it was very much a case of their Characters just being either you know, dopey or placed in very unbeatlesque type situations, and more on that later when uh, you hear the discussion with Mitch. They consciously decided, or rather, Al Brodax consciously decided, with as part of a Beatles requirement, that they didn't want to have the Beatles cartoon characters of the TV series be the Beatles characters that were in the film. They were going to reinvent right. them for the film. So they were going to look like they looked in 1968. And right. they had a chance to reinvent them. You've already gone and spoken to him about how they walked and how they moved. And absolutely, they paid a lot of attention to how they walked. I mean, the, the Beatles, they would come into the studio from time to time to say, right, how's it going? Let's show you what do you think. But apart from that, and apart from the very end of the film, the Beatles had next to nothing to actually do with the film. It was a contractual 
arrangement with United Artists who wanted three films out of them and, uh, right. and they found the only reason Let It Be came to be made was because Yellow Submarine with only less than a minute of actual Beatles appearance in the film didn't fulfill that UA requirement in the contract. Oh, was it, Ringo? Halloween. What I find interesting, too, is that I've read that when they were actually coming up with the idea of Yellow Submarine with the animation that there was somebody who made a statement that, you know, they had seen Fantasia, Disney's Fantasia. And they had said that even though it's a Disney film, it's a film that was made as a really significant, profound piece of art. And it's a film that was made for mature audiences as well. It wasn't just for, it wasn't a kiddies film. I mean, it, it was something that would kind of could stand on all the, all levels. I mean, it could be appreciated by adults as well as children, right? Mm. And I think that that's the kind of idea that they were kind of uh, going with with Yellow Submarine is that they wanted to kind of uh, tap into the zeitgeist of the 60s with all the, the flower power and, you know, and everyone dropping out and uh, tripping, uh, you know, having the psychedelic experience. They wanted that. But at the same time, I think also is that they wanted something that could be appreciated by many, many people, like different groups. So it wasn't going to be like head. No, mm. no. Isn't it George Michael Dolan's? Definitely not. So, Bernie, it seems to me like you've already gone and indicated that you have some reservations. So where yeah. do you see is the big is the failing or otherwise of the film? Well, I, I don't come to it with the kind of baggage of being a Beatles fan. If uh, I, I don't mean that in a um, disrespectful way, or, or no, anything, not, not but, taken. But because I, because I don't have that kind of thing, then it's more a case of judging the film on its own merits for me. And going back to uh, what Sam asked earlier about whether it stands the test of time, and also what what Tim was saying just then that it was kind of trying to tap into the zeitgeist. I, I don't think it has the animation. Sorry, I should say. I think there's still a lot to admire there and in a sense kind of like the Beatles themselves it was an interesting new thing at the time and so looking at that now you can see how it was fairly groundbreaking and the influence it's continued to have. I think that the problem with the film for me is more the writing uh, than anything else like Tim just said you know it it kind of the creators were trying to tap into that zeitgeist but it, it kind of feels to me like the generation before the Beatles or somebody perhaps even a bit older trying to write younger people mm-hmm. if you see right. what I mean it doesn't kind of feel sure. genuine to me and that sure. really carries over into the mm-hmm. into the dialogue and a lot of the humour in the film yes. it's very kind of almost musical in its kind of level of uh, sort of joking and so on and and I think that's kind of reflected in the the people doing the voices as well the fact you've got Dick Emery I guess he's a slightly older version of Benny Hill yes if that makes sense the fact that you've got him you know doing a lot of the voices uh Lance Percival as well it kind of feels like older men in business suits trying to put together something that will appeal to the young people but I don't know that's that's just my take on it I think it's a valid criticism I mean Last month, while we were talking at Rockstar, and I think we made the same sort of criticism there, that that was a film that was put together. What do the young kids like? And and really, I guess that's probably often a danger that can happen with a music-related film, particularly something based on rock music, 
because film is going to have to be made by people with money. It's not a cheap thing to put sure, together yeah. a, to put together a film. Yeah. So the, the people with money are not necessarily going to be artistically inclined. They're just going to say, right, let, let's do what a cheap knockoff is that will appeal. This is what the kids like. Okay, this is what we'll do. Having said that, I don't feel that way about this film. It is more broad entertainment. I don't think it's as blatant an attempt to kind of let's tap into this kid market and make some money or let's tap no, into these hippies. No, no. There's definitely no, more soul and heart that went into it than that, but there's I can't a lot of help social, but feel a kind of undercurrent of that. There's a lot of social criticism in this film too, I think, that's kind of funny, that's not so there is, but it's Well, I don't know. I was going to say it's kind of fairly broad, that stuff, I, well, I felt. Jeremy, the nowhere man, you know, representing kind of the, the bourgeois, kind of, you know, the elitist up his own arse, you know, disappearing up his own arse. I mean, these pseudo-intellectuals, you know, and uh, initially the Blue Meanies, according to Heinz, artist who created them, he said initially that they were going to be red. Right. You know, you can't get much more blatant than that. Are you, uh, bluish? You don't look bluish. Like, again, it's the zeitgeist of the time and them taking kind of pokes and um, taking the piss out of certain things. You know, you look at the captain, the you know, the sub-captain, uh, Captain Frank. Fred. And Fred, sorry, Fred. He's like that post-war guy. That's what I think is, is amazing. Like the beginning of the film with Eleanor Rigby, where it almost looks like Dresden. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's all blown out. I, I don't know. It just feels to me like there's something there. and It's not just some type of patchwork like, oh, this looks provocative or this looks kind of weird. Let's put this here and let's put this here. I mean, like, there's also the image of the finger as the gun. Come here, glove. Look out there and what do you see? Tell him, Mac. Someone running, glove. Oh, well, you'll soon put a stop to that, won't you, Glovey? Go, Glove! Point and having pointed! Let's go! That big pointing finger. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. I, and, it's, and to me, I think it's it's really funny. That symbolism today, it made me laugh when I just watched this recently again because I'm thinking, you know, if there was ever a symbol that could basically be indicative of modern times, it's that pointing finger. That's all we do anymore is just point fingers at each other. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Um, where are we? I don't know. It looks like the foothills. The foothills of what? The foothills of the headlands. I do want to say one other thing to you, Bernie. You mentioned that you don't come to this with any of the baggage of having been a Beatles fan. And I know it is, from a musical perspective, it is hard for me to be objective. And that's why I've never, ever covered a Beatles album on Love That Album, and I'm never likely to. Plus also the fact that there are other people out there who are doing it a thousand times better than I ever would. But having said that, Magical Mystery Tour, the film that they did just after Brian Epstein died, is the most dire piece of shit on the (laughs) planet. And I don't think you'll find a single Beatles fan who will say otherwise. Funnily enough, I believe that the film has a fan in Martin Scorsese. He actually said, oh, no, I think it's a wonderful film. I think that there's a lot to be admired in the filmmaking techniques. And when I saw some of Martin Scorsese's early student films, it's like a DVD of his really early works, short films. And I thought, 
okay, I can tell you have watched Magical Mystery Tour, but Martin Scorsese's early student films are equally shit. And I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll stand on this little table that wow. I have in here in, in my cowboy boots and, and declare it. But yeah, what, so what does that Scorsese cat know anyway? What's yeah, what, what the hell does he know? Bloody taxi yeah. driver, king of comedy. The point I wanted to make is being a Beatles fan does not blind me to anything that they did potentially yeah, with. Sure. But Yellow Submarine well, for me is a wonderful thing. It's interesting that, you know, you, you kind of bring that up. I find that even though I'm not a particular fan, I find it hard to be objective about the Beatles because I think anybody of a certain age, it's why it's interesting that Sam is doing what he does with his podcast and so on, because obviously this is something that's newer to him than it is to us, mm-hmm. in a sense. I don't want to sound like an old patronising fart here, and I apologise. <laughs> but uh, I, I just think people over a certain age, people in their sort of 40s now, I guess, the Beatles and their music is kind of ubiquitous. It's always been there, and it's part of kind of fabric of your life, whether you kind of like it or not. So it's it's kind of a constant, and because of that, it's difficult to be objective about it, I think. Well, talking about but objectivism with this film, I think objectively the narrative suffers and that's because it was done in less than a year. I mean, uh, when, when you mentioned earlier that the Beatles would come into the studios, I couldn't imagine anything more horrifying the animators because as we see by the end of the movie, the Beatles look nothing like how they're actually represented in the film. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm not too exactly sure of the timelines and dates and stuff, but it's interesting for a film like Yellow Submarine, most of the songs were written before production even began, at least for a large majority of the songs. And it reminds me of things like, uh, in a more positive light, say, Singing in the Rain, which had withdrew upon a large back catalogue of, of movies, right. or to more modern garbage, things like We Will Rock You, Mamma Mia, where they just find a band and create a musical around it. Well, they're, called, they're jukebox musicals. Jukebox, that's, yes, that, that, and to me, yeah, yeah. I think Yellow Submarine veers a little too closely towards this at times. And I feel like whenever the songs do pop up, it's not exactly because a song is needed at this point. It's more like because we've got these songs, we have the rights to these songs, yeah. we need to be to put them in, the audience are getting bored. And the prime example of this is when they sing All Together Now, literally not 10 seconds after they get onto the Yellow Submarine. And about a minute before they start singing when I'm 64 as well. Give me your answer, fill in a form, mine forevermore. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? And I think if they'd spaced it out a little longer, if it was a little bit longer in, in general, there would have been more of a flow to it. Which makes it even more interesting that Hey Bulldog didn't even make it onto the American release at all. Not the original American release. It was when they restored it in 1999 for a home video release and for brief release in the cinema. That's when they restored it. Yeah. But do you think the songs come up at appropriate times, or do you think there's a lot of it that's just thrown in? I think that is an argument that can be said for both. But the problem is that we're approaching the film through the lens of conventional narrative. And there's nothing about this film that's really <laughs> right conventional. There. It's a new style of filmmaking. Well, maybe not a new style of filmmaking, but something that they wanted to approach in this way. And to me, it's it's very, very British because one thing that's in common between Hard Day's Night and Help and Yellow Submarine, um, you know, nothing to say that Magical Mystery Tour, and certainly not the case of Letter B because it was a warts and all documentary. But something that's in common with those three is... In the early days, John Lennon had made no secret of his love of the goons. 
and his sense of the ridiculous. And he'd gone and written those two books of poetry in his own right and the Spaniard in the works. And, you know, Spike Milligan was his big hero. We often hear about, you know, musicians saying that their musicians are heroes, but his heroes were literary or comedians. And mm-hmm. the one thing in common with those three films is a sense of ridiculous. I mean, you have a ton of really bad puns in this film, and yet they work. They belong here. By Neptune's knickerbockers, she's patted out. Or maybe we should call a road service. Can't, no road. And we're not subscribers. Subscribers. You get these surreal images, but you get the down-earthiness of, you know, it, it's the Beatles. It's, they're not floating off into space. The moment when we first see George high on the mountaintop, that's, you know, probably sort of like a jokey reference to his newfound spirituality. But then a moment later, he's driving a flashy motor car, which is, you know, anyone who's a Beatles fan or a George fan knows was his other passion. So for the most part, they're represented as being fairly down to earth. They're the rock that holds this down in this whole very surreal piece. And I like the fact that there are moments where, you know, if they'd said, well, we've got to stick to a conventional narrative, we have to stick with things that made sense, it wouldn't have looked as beautiful. So you got like, for instance, the, the moment with the monster who sucks everything into his nostril or in, into his trumpet-like nose, and then he sucks the whole ocean into his nose, and that should be the end of it. But no, it's not, because then we see the yellow submarine in the sea of nothing. It's all surreal. It's all fantasy. They're not playing by a conventional set of narrative telling rules. So I think that how they use the music and especially they take into consideration that there'll be some people who will get this story and then they're going to be young kids who are just going to want to say, hey, let's hear another song. So I think they're catering to both. And yes, there are, like in a Marx Brothers film, every time I hear a song, I want to fast forward. Okay, so fair enough. <laughs> but not in this film. I think to me, everything in its place and it all works. I mean, if there's any mild criticism and it's really, it's a nothing sort of thing is we get the blue minis at the very beginning and then we don't get to see the blue minis until half an hour before the end. So the journey through the various seas maybe is a little bit of padding, but it's not like I don't enjoy it, but I would have liked to have seen more conflict with with the minis. But eh, I'm not going to argue with with these people. They know what they were doing. It's interesting you mentioned the beginning because for me, the beginning is probably the most flagrantly outrageous part of the film. It's about an eight-minute sort of intro introducing Pepper Land, the mayor, Captain Fred, the blue minis, Max, and all all that lot. And it really is the biggest palate cleanser I've probably seen in a film, probably up until something like Gladiator, which is like, whoa, your body is just rejecting this psychedelic stump, like substance before the trip can start. And you kind of, you have to process this cacophony of sound, this visual assault and color and form. And, you know, it's like this Lewis Carroll meets William Blake, Dali type landscape. Right. And the characters are all incomprehensible. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the motivations are or why. And then you hear, in the town. And I'm like, right, I'm in, I'm sold. It's a real testament to the power of the Beatles music. Because I've just been confused, I've been distraught, I've been turned upside down. And the moment you hear their music surge straight into the film, you know you're along for the ride immediately. And I don't know whether that's just because of their music or the music paired with the frankly incredible visuals. But I just remember my total opinion doing a complete 180 degree after the first sort of eight minutes. And the film really does pick off, uh, so pick up once we enter the L.A. Eleanor Rigby section, which is probably one of the most jarring Beatles kind of stark transitions since uh, Revolution 9 to uh, Good Night. 
it just goes on this wonderful yellow submarine, like, hey, you know, we're on the yellow submarine, it's going to be a cool li- little adventure. And then we just enter, like uh, Tim said, it's almost like Dresden. It's this hellhole. And the, the boldness of choosing Eleanor Rigby to be the second song in quite a upbeat, cheerful, pleasant-toned Beatles song, I think was actually quite daring. And I, I never actually expected Eleanor Rigby to come up. And it shows early on the two kind of halves of the Beatles. You've got their very serious songs, and you've got their kind of happy-go-lucky type tracks. And I'm glad that they put them both at the start straight away if you look at that first image that you see after Eleanor Rigby it's of Ringo standing next to a wall in Liverpool and that's all like photo in the background with with Ringo as an animated thing and he's wearing this very colourful shirt and I love it it's that contrast Liverpool can be a dull place on a Saturday night oh is me Liverpool can be a lonely place on a Saturday night. And this is only Thursday morning. Compared with my life, another Rigby was a gay mad world. Nothing ever happens to me. I feel like an old splintered drumstick. I jump into the River Mersey, but it looks like rain. And he's there, he's part of this very colourful counterculture, he's part of the world's most popular group, although that's never really a point in the film. He's just one of four superheroes that's going to bring back music to Pepperland. And I love this contrast of the grey of Liverpool, but it's the colourful characters of the Beatles, ergo by what they're wearing and by their very distinct public personas that they have to accentuate to make them as worthwhile heroes or saviours of Pepperland. And I really love that contrast. And I think Eleanor Rigby leads into that grayness quite well. And if you see the various shots and all those people who you see are actual animators or technicians or people who worked on the film. I didn't know at first, you know, were they famous actors or politicians or the like, but reading this Mojo article, I said, no, it's all people who worked on the film that you see in that very Terry Gilliam style. And it's all gray, but then you see the very colorful yellow submarine just sort of float past on its way to finding Ringo. I just love that contrast between you know, the grey, which Eleanor Rigby personifies so well, and then we get to see the colourful Beatles uh, later on. I, th- I think it's a, a great contrast and a great intro. We mean is only take no pen answer. Is that understood, Max? No, your blueness. That's better. Now, you mentioned, Sam, in a discussion that we had during the week that there'd been talk of a Robert Zemeckis remake. Now, I only found out about that recently through something that I think Mitch Axelrod had posted or had made mention in Fab Four Free For All podcast of a few years ago where they were talking about Yellow Submarine. And, I mean, I know it's it's often a knee-jerk reaction amongst film fans to say, oh, really, why would they want to remake that? But I want to ask you, do you think that a remake in modern times would be a good idea and why? Well, there are certain films that do require remakes. The Thing, The Blob, The Fly, all fantastic remakes because they weren't able to achieve that specific vision the first time around, whether it's limited due to technology or budget or whatever. I personally think The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen would benefit greatly from a, a remake. But for Yellow Submarine, it's kind of like Jaws. This is untouchable. You cannot do this. And I think if they just did something completely different and didn't try to get that exact zeitgeist, like we mentioned, of the 60s and try and just transpose it into CGI or whatever, it could work. Whether Robert Zemeckis is the best guy to do it is a different story altogether. Obviously, he's had a lot of experience in motion capture films, uh, The Puddle Express, A Christmas Carol, which both use that horrible motion capture technology that really wasn't 
implemented well in the uh, mid to late 2000s. And then he also had Mars Needs Moms, which was he was a, a producer on for Disney, which ultimately lost over $100 million. So Disney kind of pulled out and just shit-canned the whole project. There has been the concept art and animation tests for a lot of the characters, and unfortunately it did look kind of terrible. I've just been randomly showing people in my circles, and I don't think anyone liked the general look that, that they were going for. But maybe if they brought in someone with a bit more flair and, and a bit more youth, like the guys who did the Lego movie, or Edgar Wright, someone with a bit of pop and a, and a bit of flair, as long as, that, as it's not Ron, mediocre documentary Howard, I think a remake... <laughs> <laughs> be really good. I've actually bought my stepdad eight days a week for Christmas, so I will be watching it here on Boxing Day. But yeah, it's it. <sighs> watching it again. I'm not particularly looking for too too forward for it. But on the subject of the movie, Zemecka said it would not have been a great one to bring the Beatles back to life, but it's probably better not to be remade. You're always behind the eight ball when you do a remake. It gets harder and harder to make movies. With the current state of the industry, it's difficult to stay passionate about it. The hardest thing for a filmmaker as he's aging is saying, how much of more of this crap can I take? It's tough, and I can only do it if I have a script to believe in. And fundamentally, Yellow Submarine doesn't have a script worth remaking. It has a story and a vibe and a feeling worth maybe putting back on the screen for a new generation. A Force Awakens of Yellow Submarine, perhaps maybe one that utilises more of the Beatles' history that is now part of the general social awareness, possibly using my ending, my story. I'd like some copyright for that. But are you guys glad that it wasn't remade? Oh, absolutely. I mean, whilst it's, I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of the film anyway, it's so much of its time and it's so representative of its time and what was occurring in the world at that point. It, it's almost like a historical document though. Mm. So to right. kind of, to meddle with it and try and remake it is just completely missing the point. There's just right. no need at all to do that. I think the thing is too, with a lot of remakes, it's all boils down to the fact the Western hemisphere just can't be bothered to read subtitles while they watch a movie, right? Yeah, but with this, that excuse doesn't apply. There has to be a reason to remake something. And if you could say, well, the art dodgy in the original. Like, for example, I'm thinking of Ralph Baschke's The Lord of the Rings, the animated movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrible. No, oh, and uh, a lot of people, yeah but, yeah, but what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you see that and then somebody would say, well, we can improve on that, you know, and then they go and make the live action Lord of the Rings or whatever, you know. With this, the artwork is pristine to me. It's beautiful. Mm. It's gorgeous. You know, it, it shouldn't be fucked yeah. with. It sh- you can't improve on this. I mean, it is like Bernie said, it's a historical document now. And I think it's something that you well, can't be, try, you know, trying to be objective about it. The look of the film is easily its strongest point. So why fuck right. with that? Why try and better that? You just, you can. It's missing the point completely. It's ridiculous. And I can see some idiots trying to do like with Spielberg did Tintin. You know, uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah. I could see some idiots trying to do that with Yellow Submarine and I could I could just see it failing miserably, you know, like it, it would be in the hands of Disney though. Disney own would would have the rights to it. They and they would be the only guys who would be able to do it on this scale. And I think everything Disney is doing at the moment in terms of their sort of regurgitation of pop culture. Like, they haven't really made anything new. I mean, does Frozen count as new? I don't really know. But, you know, they've handled Star Wars. They've handled the Marvel Universe very well, very tastefully. It appeals to a broad audience. And the visuals they were experimenting in in the recent Doctor Strange film, uh, it was was a piece of shit, but visually, it was was really arresting. And there were certain scenes where I could have sworn, like, have they slipped some DMT, some mushrooms, into my Pepsi? Because it was absolutely mad. Like, I know that 
that it's something producer moguls were like, ah, you know what? We, we got some better visuals. See, well, well I make it better. They'll, 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 they'll go see it again. And sometimes that worked. You've got Jurassic World, which is just Jurassic Park again, but it's a soft reboot and they haven't technically rebooted it. So it's technically not, not a sequel. So people will, will go see it. I don't think you could do a kind of a, any kind of sequel or carry on film like this. There aren't really, really many song, uh, movies that are based off a song like this. As far as I can remember, literally just Yellow Submarine. Maybe pick another Beatles song and do an animated movie about that and do something for a new generation. Helter Skelter. <laughs> An animated Charles Manson's kind of children's comedy rated PG. That could be really fun. Right. Yeah, oh, I'd, yeah, I'd be all over that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look at all the little piggies. <laughs> I mean, you've all raised really, really great points. I think the whole purpose of remaking a film with the Beatles as central characters just makes no sense. I mean, okay, obviously we get documentaries. That's fine to say, right, well, kids of today or adults who want to remember, this is what the Beatles were like. Here's their story from all those years ago. And then you can say, oh, okay. But to have a fictitious story about real people, you know, even if they're characters of those real people, it makes no sense. If anything, you'd want to take the idea of making an animated film and focusing it around whatever the musical hero of today is, okay, regardless of whether it'd be a good film or not. Lady Gaga. Well, it, it, it's not, it's not my taste, but it makes sense. Whereas to make a Beatles animated cartoon, it just makes no sense. And I know our, our very good friend Eric Reanimator would have a, he'd be saying something about fucking baby boomers or in his description. And I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for his response when he listens to this, but in this case, he'd be completely right. There'd be no point in making a film that would either be trying to appeal to people of a certain generation or, you know, trying to sell it to the kids of today. One, you know, a documentary is one thing. That's fine. But to make a fictitious well, thing using real life people, it has to be people of today. Right. You know, what's really interesting. I noted that recently they are marketing the Beatles and Yellow Submarine again to the current generation. And you know how they're doing it? Lego. Yeah. Oh, I thought we didn't mention it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. I think that's really cool. It almost, you know, opens the door to the kids to go back, and it's like, oh, you like that yellow submarine, eh? Well, hey, kid, check this out, you know? Whoa! <laughs> I bet a good 70% of those Beatles Lego sales are to uh, people oh, like us, nerds. basically, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all us uh, 50-year-old Beatles fanatics buying them. Mm. Right. Today... I think we're slowly running out of time, but I just want to ask each of you, even you, Sam and Bernie, who said that you had a lot of reservations with the film, but was there anything in particular that you really like, a particular image that you thought, wow, that's fantastic, or song placement, or some dialogue that you thought, now that bit really worked. There are a couple of highlights. Number one, the fact that Hey Bulldog is in a anything to do with Beatles pop culture for a wide audience is f- totally fine with me. It's my favourite Beatles song by far. And I'm glad that other people might even know it exists. When the head meanie says, 
the glove has lost his touch. That always sends a little tickle down my spine. I mean, I know I've been quite harsh on it, but there's never a point where you're bored enough to turn it over. There's always still something going on for you, and that is its, is its strength. But there are a lot of elements on the fringes that do just keep annoying me. Like, oh, it'd be nice if we had a scene with the Beatles together before the Ellison Marine came. Oh, it'd be nice if the, the Beatles said, why are we going to Pepperland? Just little things to ease my three-act structure the speed type narratives that I really do like. Like there's 90 minute movies. We have a beginning, a middle and an end. And I mean, there is nothing close to an arc in this movie. Um, it does have a three act structure. Though. What you mean? The bit what? before the sea, the sea in the end. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> if you can call it a structure or more just a, a, a meandering, really, we probably didn't need all those seas. We probably could have cut a chunk of it out, possibly even a scene with the Beatles talking to the head meanie before the final fight. Mm. It does feel very, um, I'm trying to think of a, an example now. Well, um, like the new Star Trek film, for example, you see the bad guy at the start, you don't see him for like an hour and a half, and then you see him right, right at the end, and then it's over. You're like, oh, okay, cool. Mm. It, the, the film does feel short, actually. I must say that before we go. I would have liked the film to be longer. There's an old joke. Um, two elderly women are at a Catskill Mountain resort, <clears throat> and one of them says, boy, the food at this place is really terrible. The other one says, yeah, I know, and such small portions. Obviously, there's the limitations of the technology of the time and stuff. I'm really torn about it. I really am. I want it to be better. It's still probably the third best Beatles movie, obviously going from Let, uh, Let It Be down to Hard Day's Night, Yellow Submarine, then Help, the Magical Mystery Tour. Funnily enough, Magical Mystery Tour, if the Yellow Submarine album had been marketed like the Magical Mystery Tour LP, which went to America, which had all the other songs on it, I think it actually would have performed a little more stronger if if it had all the little snippets. Like, um, there's a brilliant part where you get a snippet of Love to You off Revolver when you first meet George. And the fact that they put that in as well, because that's also one of my kind of lesser-known favourites, the fact that they put that in at all mm. is brilliant as well. And if they put all those songs onto, onto side two, like we could have had uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts, Club Band, Lucy and Scarlet Diamonds. If we'd had them on, the album probably would have done better, I feel, well, as well. Well, as it turns out, I think in the late 90s, after they remastered the uh, film the first time, they did release what they called the Yellow Submarine song track. So oh, okay. actually, there actually is a CD available of with no George Martin music, and it's just only songs that appeared in the film. So the, the four new songs, the two additional songs that were on the original album, Plus all the other songs like Nowhere Man and what? and I presume Sorry, Love You I'm, Too. I'm just confused as as to what a CD is, Granddad. I really am. Uh. <laughs> go away, small person. <laughs> now, Grandfather Tim. No, actually, no. We'll go to Bernie because you're the other one with reservations. Bernie, uh, is there anything in the film that you'd say? Yep, that stands out. I really like that. Two things spring to mind, and it's they're kind of a little broader and not really Beatles related, if that makes sense. That's okay. We're talking about um, the film. Cool. Well, first of all, I mean, the, the general visual style of the film I really like, and that is for the two reasons that I'm going to talk about briefly here. First of all, it, it kind of is very representative of sort of British psychedelia in general, mm-hmm. and British psychedelia is kind of appropriation of, I guess, almost sort of Victorian and old English imagery, which is something that I find very appealing about British psychedelia. I mean, you look at American stuff and it doesn't really have that kind of vibe to it. So I like that uh, aspect of it. And, and the other thing as well is that there's real kind of nostalgic warmth that I get from this film. And that isn't specifically because of the film. Again, the style of it is so influential that a lot of children's shows 
look vaguely similar to this. Things that came out in sort of animation in the 70s in general, and just that kind of look and vibe that really carries over into a lot of stuff that I remember watching as a child. Did you watch The Magic Roundabout? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. does this remind you anything of that? A little bit, I guess. A little bit. I'm thinking more of weird things like Crystal Tips and Alistair. And... What's a kingdom show? Oh, with, uh, Jake. Know. Adventure Time? Oh, Adventure Time. Adventure yeah, Adventure yeah, Time. I guess that's... you can see elements of that, uh, of Yellow Oh, yeah, big, that as well. big time. Yeah. So, yeah, really, it, it's those two things. It's that kind of British psychedelic feel and just that kind of warm nostalgia feeling. I mean, I'm a sucker for nostalgia anyway, but it, it taps into that for me. And, you know, that aspect of the film I find sort of quite interesting and rewarding. No, when you were talking about earlier about how the dire songs are in the beginning of the film and then it goes into the lighter stuff at the end, I think that there is something about the post-war period in England and just how there was a, a, a time when everything seems grey and everything just seemed, it was after a kind of a an upheaval or something and then it, it goes into this kind of the old fella has seen it all and now everybody's trying to be happy. The old people, like when he, he comes upon the band shell, then the old people, he's like, the meanies are coming home. We're just trying to finish playing our, our little set here. You know, they just want to be happy. They want to be left alone. And then the, and then the meanies come full on. I love all that. The Eleanor Rigby, the stuff that they did with the, uh, I forget the name of the, the process, the teletype. Uh, I forget now where, where they have with the simple motions, you know, the soccer player and the, right. and the guy at the pub with the dog. And I, I love all that. And I want to say one thing now, and this might really spoil the film from here on in for people, but Bernie, every time I see that head blue meanie now, there's only one person I think of, Jimmy Savile. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have made that connection, but now you said that, that's, yeah, it's indelible. As, no, that's not going away. As long as we don't leave the head blue meanie in a children's hospital. There we go, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> it's just the voice and the characterization and everything, and it's just like, Hello, how are you? What are you doing here? Holy shit. <laughs> this completely reminds me of Jimmy Savile. I, I just, oh, I just yeah. watched that documentary with Louis Thoreau about Savile, you know? Yeah. So then when I, so then when I started watching Yellow Submarine again, I'm going, now there's something, there's some, oh my God, it's Jimmy Savile. Oh shit. <laughs> well, it's, you know, Jimmy Savile was part of that zeitgeist as well, in a way. He was a super well-known, popular person at the time with his top of the pops and DJing uh, and yeah. so forth. Uh-huh. Yeah. Maybe that's part of the times that we should forget though. The one thing that I do love about this film most of all too now that you know it comes to mind is that you were talking about earlier Sam whether or not this is uh, outdated or whether the film still holds its own and I think that I've known people that have shown this to their kids to like their little one and their kids love this and again like I say I think it ties to like modern animation like we were talking earlier about it adventure time and, and the stuff that's more surreal mm-hmm. and you know yeah of course you know the film has appealed to you know the the stoners and everyone you know off their head they can get off on that but then there's also for children children are the ones that have the imaginations that the ones that embrace the surreal that embrace the innocence too i mean yeah. i think that there's one thing in this film that stands out above all is i think there's a real honest innocence in this film i don't think there's a maliciousness or there's any type of pretense with this film i think for 
for me, it just seems like it's just really, it comes from a good place, you know? Mm, I 100% concur with that. Tim, when you said, who does the head blue meanie remind you of in this film? Yeah. Uh, I thought you were going to say Morris, because <laughs> there's a certain <laughs> char- char- character in the film who is the kind of consort to the head blue meanie, which is Max. Max? You're blue. I mean, uh, uh, your newness? It's no longer a blue world, Max. Where could we go? Argentina? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. No, no, Max, we only take no for an answer. Right. (laughs) I'm not quite sure how my son will take having himself compared to Max. I'm quite happy to be compared to the Chief Blue Manny, but but not to be compared (laughs) to Jimmy Savile, I'll tell you that. Oh, no, I was going to say that for the Savile. Yeah, yeah, let's go there. Yeah, Mm. thanks, Tim, you've ruined it for me. So, look, you're probably just my final thoughts on the film. I mean, I've already gone and started. I have a complete love for this film. I love its imagination. I love it visually. I love that there's so many different animation styles. There's not just one look. We have the rotoscope of Lucy in the sky. We have, the, for lack of a better term, because I don't have technical knowledge, but what became the Terry Gilliam style. I love you know, the surreal feel of these characters. And they thought, well, it's not, we're make, not making a conventional narrative. We can have whatever we want. We can have a honker. We can have a Turkish guy with a, a stomach that opens up and bites people. We can have a, a flying glove. We can do all this. I, I just love that visually. But I also love the link to the old Beatles style of puns. And there are some great, for me, very, very funny moments. And, and it is all due to the puns. It is due to the great writing. Tim, you were saying at the beginning of the show that you love how you know, they looked a lot at the Beatles and how in, in terms of movement to make sure that right. when they moved, they looked like what the real Beatles would walk like. But right. I also think that they knew how the Beatles would probably sound like if they were having a conversation or at least sort of running a little bit with the what was the public perception of them because of films like A Hard Day's Night and Help and even you know the Beatles at their own press conferences where they like to joke around, where they like to have humour, of course, forgetting a lot about the troubled times of 1966, you know, with the, the abomination that was their trip to the Philippines and also the time where in the American South where you know, they had these very serious press conferences because, you know, they were threatened with their lives and you know, John Lennon saying that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus Christ being taken out of context. Some teenagers have said, uh, have repeated your statements that the Beatles, I like the Beatles more than Jesus Christ. What do you think about that? Well, originally I was, I was pointed out that fact in reference to England, that we meant more to kids than Jesus did, or religion at that time. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down, I was just saying it as a fact. And it sort of, it is true, especially more for England than here. You know, well, I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. You know, I just said what I said and it was wrong or was taken wrong and now it's all this. You know, they were no longer the, the sweet mop-top darling. So they've chosen to say, right, well, we're going to take this to a more positive, more happy image. This is the film that we're making. Sam, you were saying, oh, you prefer to see something a bit more dark, like an animated version of Let It Be. Talk about their conflict, but... You know, really, there's, there's a very good reason why Let It Be has never been made officially available. And, you know, McCartney 
does not want to see that image not on. of him <laughs> brought back in mind to the general public. Though. George, I just want you to play the solo. How I want you to play? Is there too much to ask? I'll play it if you want me to, or maybe I won't even play it if you don't want me to. Ah, you know, whatever. Well, I'll just I know you didn't I'll, want me. I'll be passive aggressive if you like. Yeah, okay, well, I don't mind. I'll, I'll play, you know, whatever you want me to play. Or I won't play at all if you don't want me to play. Whatever it is, I'll please you. I'll do it. They all sound so tired. They sound so tired in that movie. So can you imagine them doing an animation for that? No way. It had to be something that was going to be appealing. Yes, to the kids. I wanted a kids market, but for me, the dialogue was intelligent enough and clever enough to appeal to far more people. And that's why, as Tim says, you can show the film to a kid nowadays and maybe, you know, to some adults who are fans of animation and just want to know what the period was like. And it still works as a great film and a period piece. So. And could you imagine seeing a little animated Yoko too? And the only thing it's, the only thing it says is. It's funny you should say that. On uh, Animaniacs, a show that Spielberg produced, a cartoon series, there is an episode where the Animaniacs become the Beatles, and there's Bobo Obo, who's John, uh, who's John's equivalent's girlfriend, and whenever she talks to people, not only she goes, it's really funny. And there's, and there's the Simpsons version of Yoko as well, who orders a plum in perfume served in a man's hat. Hey, Barney, what'll it be? I'd like a beer, Mo. I'd like a single plum floating in perfume served in a man's hat. Here you go. And that piece is actually at her current exhibition in London. You can check that out. It's cost. She's actually made that now. She's actually made that into a wow. thing. Wow. How about that? I must complete my bust. Two novels, finish my blueprints, begin my begin. Most of you always talk in rhyme. <laughs> if I spoke prose, you'd all find out I don't know what I talk about. Can I just put forward my one, uh, my favourite bit of Yellow Submarine trivia? I'd love you to. Um, and I expect you fellows all know this, but um, I believe the animation or one of the animation supervisors on Yellow Submarine is a fellow called Ted Lewis. Uh, Ted Lewis was also a writer. He wrote several novels, one of them being Get Carter, which uh, right. obviously became a Michael Caine film. So, yeah, that, that's my favourite thing about Yellow Submarine. One of the animators wrote one of the greatest British crime films ever. Well, he wrote the novel that the film was uh, oh, the based on. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. But th- as I say, there's three Jack Carter novels, and uh, they're all worth checking out if, if you like Get Carter in the movie. They're all full of characters like Peter the Dutchman and stuff like that. So, right. very good. There you go. So, th- yeah, there you go. Okay, so that concludes our discussion of Yellow Submarine. I think we all want to say a very huge thank you to Sam for uh, joining us for this episode to see you. And- thank you, guys. Um, I'm just going to do a quick plug. I didn't manage to finish my plug earlier because I realised I haven't given people any information about how to find we, me. We were uh, going to offer you that opportunity. Ah, oh, thank you very much. Go on YouTube, type in either Paul or Nothing, or if you want to be a bit more general, Paul McCartney Podcast. Ig- ig- ignore the other Paul McCartney Podcast that's on there. You can find me on iTunes, any sort of podcast app. You can check out the blog, which is at www.paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at McCartneyPod. You can even drop us an email in if you want. I read out all correspondence on the show. We did that on Down in the Hole. That's something I really loved to, to keep doing, kind of build that fan base and you can send us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com that is, the that, those is are all the, to, the, sh- the show is called Paul or Nothing which is a very bad pun but the Beatles love puns so I had to do it What my, my original name was going to be called Sailor Sam on the show which is one of the few things that I decided to 
cut Shrey away because I thought that 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 one is just too cheesy. But yeah, please check out the show, folks, and I'll be having you, Morris, on very very soon as well. Yeah, sometimes for London, London Town. was it London Town? Yeah, yeah. London, London Town. One of the uh, the lesser notes in the in in the Wings history. So I thought I'd bring on a titan such as yourself to jazz up the episode a little bit. So I can't I can't wait for that. There you go. Already dropping your thoughts about the uh, album. You can't do that. You got to you got to build it up. Got to build it up. That's what we do. Back to the egg is rubbish. I'm just going to get that out of the way now. So right, fans, sorry, fans I don't want to I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> I don't I don't know you. Um, Okay, so next month will be episode 37. And I should say, by the time this comes out, this is uh, our third year anniversary. Three years since we started this show. Jeez. Happy anniversary, Tim and Bernie. Yeah, and to you, Morris. How many, uh, what's for three years? Is that like paper or something? Tim no, foil? No, pa- paper is first anniversary. I'm not sure what it is for three. When Tim comes to visit me in three weeks, he's coming to uh, visit me in Melbourne. I'm sure I will have a present of, for, of whatever the third anniversary is. Happy anniversary, Timmy. Thank you. Uh, I think Tim coming to visit you is... uh... Tim coming to visit you is the present all in itself, I think. You better you're believe it, get, Sunshine. You're not going to get anything better than that. No. So, Tim, it's your pick next month. We'll still be recording an episode. And uh, what will episode 37 be focusing on? Well, I was thinking of a number of uh, selections, you know, toss up between a couple of things. One film that I've wanted to kind of cover for a while now, and I actually brought him up as a filmmaker earlier, Ralph Baschke. Yeah, is yeah. Uh, he put out a film in 1981 called American Pop. Right. Yes, I know the one. Uh, Dr. Zomba recommended that one to me a couple of years ago. And uh, I saw it as a kid in the theater with a double bill of Hey, Good Looking, which was another Baschke film. And um, it's wor- it's pretty worthy of covering. I want to basically look at that nice. for next month. Very good. Right, there you go. Uh, American, Never even heard of that one. So. It's it's, uh, it's definitely worth your time. It's a, it's a but. Well, I'm not going to give anything away. But yes, I've, I've seen it and I did enjoy that. So I, I'm cool. glad that you picked that one. All right. So just very quickly, so. if you want to uh, send us an email, and I know that thousands of you are lining up to do so to tell us. Uh, <laughs> where you think we went right or wrong about Yellow Submarine, you can write to us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com or you can uh, join the Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash seeherepodcast and that's H-E-A-R, seeherepodcast. And, uh, you know, we're a friendly bunch of people, so uh, come and give us your thoughts as to uh, great music-related films. And actually, we've, we're opening up the lines now. I'll probably put up a post on the page, which may be a little bit more successful, but we're going to open up for next year. We want four requests. Actually, Eric has already given us one, but uh, we want three more films that you'd like us to cover. So we'll have four films next year that will be suggested by the listenership. I'd like to say we'll, we'll, we'll take all uh, submissions into account, but uh, there will be no coverage of YouTube's Rattle and Hum, even if you all asked for it, okay? <laughs> yeah, we might have to. So maybe what we should do is one show where we cover... Rattle and hum, can't stop the music. Xanadu, all in one. Let's just get it out of the See, way. See, I'm on, I'm on board for two of those. It's just that, uh, that third one. Okay? Before I forget, um, I just wanted to give a shout out as well to uh, another podcast worthy of your attention. A podcast called Small Screen Cinema, where uh, our friends yes. Joe and uh, James, I believe, isn't it? They cover made-for-TV movies. They're not quite on a regular schedule, but I think there's about seven or eight episodes. Look them up on iTunes or. They're on Podbean as well, I think. Small screen cinema. Uh, they're good guys and they do a good job. Enjoyable show, so check them out. 
I've gone and sent a request to them. I'd love them to talk about Frankenstein, the true story. I don't know if you remember that film from the early 70s, a TV adaptation. Was that the Sarazen, Michael Sarazen? That's the one. That's the one. That's probably one of the scariest films I ever watched on TV. It's a TV film, but it looks like a cinema film. It is so good. I'd love to hear what they had to say about that one. The rest of us will see you. Early in 2017, may it be a a better year for us all than 2016. So please look after yourselves, drive carefully, have a wonderful Christmas Christmas or or Hanukkah. Happy holidays. Or uh, what is in Seinfeld? uh, Festivus. Festivus for the rest of us. Drive safely. Celebrate your loved ones. Just look after yourself, folks, and uh, we'll see you in the new year. Okay, all the best. Cheers. We all live in the Alice of Marine. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.